William Blake was one of the Western people trying to hold on to the ancient imagination in the Western world. And he said this beautiful little thing, every day has a moment of eternity waiting for you. So is the world a mess? Yeah. Is it going to get worse? Yes. <laughs> is the chaos going to continue to disrupt everything? Yes. Are we going to feel overwhelmed? Yes. Is it really sorrowful? Yes. All of that. But in the midst of that, every day, not in some Pollyanna way, but every day in the sense that if you accept the darkness and the weight and the trouble that is actually yours, uh, then every day has a moment of eternity. Welcome to another week here on the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan, and today my guest is one of the world's most compelling living storytellers, Michael Mead. Michael is also an author and a scholar of mythology, anthropology, and psychology. He has a uniquely mesmerizing ability to distill and synthesize these disciplines, tapping into ancient sources of wisdom and connecting those ideas to the stories we are living today. Michael is the author of Awakening the Soul, The Genius Myth, Fate and Destiny, The Two Agreements of the Soul, Why the World Doesn't End, and The Water of Life, Initiation and the Tempering of the Soul. He is also the editor with James Hillman and Robert Bly of Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, and the creator and host of the Living Myth podcast. Michael is also the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation, a nonprofit network of artists, activists, and community builders that encourages greater understanding between diverse populations. If after listening to this conversation, you want more of Michael's wisdom and vision in your life, you can join him for several upcoming online events. Michael has generously offered a 20% discount to all Hidden World listeners by using the code HIDDENWORLD, all caps, when you register for those. We will be listing all of this information about the workshops and how to register in today's show notes and also sharing it on social media. One final note, there is a tiny bit of a almost fuzzy sound on my end of the audio during this conversation. I was recording in a new place and didn't adjust my Zoom settings properly. I think it's pretty easy to ignore that sound after about 15 seconds, but I wanted to apologize to you, the listener, and to Michael for doing anything at all that could distract from his very healing and powerful message throughout our conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. Um, sure. I am assuming, you know, every time I do a podcast interview, I sort of assume I have to initiate people into the perspective someone's bringing, that it might be new to them. Um, and so I'd love it if you would answer this question, which is okay. what what is a mythic perspective or why would we want to know mythology? Oh, okay. 
So um, there's an old um, conception, which is three kinds of thinking. The first kind is literal, um, naming things, measuring things, uh, referring to facts, at least people used to refer to facts. Now everybody has their own facts. So, so much for literal facts, but in literal thinking. So it's the first kind of thinking and it's really the world of one. Like you measure one thing at the time, you measure the length and then the width and then the depth. So it's one thing at a time and it's full of language like me, I, uh, you know, one syllable words. Um, all that's part of literal uh, thinking or literal considering. And then you go to psychology, which is a doubling of the world. So then it's the facts and how I feel about them. Then it's um, the inner me and the outer world. Then it's me and you uh, and how we relate. And then it's also um, passive aggressive. It, it, and so you, the language gets complicated. The ideas are more complicated, literally doubled. And um, uh, you know, what do they call it? Uh, anyway, manic, manic depressive, at least they used to say that, or they don't wanna say that anymore. So they say bipolar, but there you are two words and they're both referring to doubling. So the psychological world is the double world. It really increases the world by doubling it. Mm. Mythology increases the world by tripling it. Mm. You, me, and the divine. Or let's say we're talking about therapy. The therapist, the client, and when the divine enters, therapy happens. Mm -hmm. Up until then, it's a conversation. Genuine therapy is going to draw in the third unseen thing. Or the therapist, the client, and the dream that the client had, yeah. or the therapist. <laughs> anyway, so so uh, a third thing comes in, and and the third thing is a charm, as they say, because it is connected to the enchantment of life. But the third thing is also divine, so that you have divine inspiration. You have the, the gods and the goddesses and figures that relate to the human, but are bigger than. So now the world has moved uh, from psychology into mythic imagination, where the imagination is utterly, totally expansive. It includes the eternal world. So the ancient Greeks like to have dichotomies. So they said there's two ways to account for the world, logic or logos and mythos. So now you're, you're back to two to begin with. But what they said is logos will give you um, a factual understanding. It will give you history and things like that. But mythos gives you the full imagination of life, uh, the eternal world as well as the time-bound world, and also the depth of feelings. And mm -hmm. so they say you can't account for the world unless you include all the feelings that people have. And that is mythos. We could say it's also psychology, but it comes from mythos, or, or that's the root of deep feeling as well as great thought, as well as imagination. Mm. So then with that in mind, what myth or, or myths are you calling forth or utilizing to help you understand the time that we're living through together right now? Good question, thank you. Um, so first of all, it starts with not me calling forth, but me being called forth. Ah. So 
I can only tell myths that ask me to. Mm. This is what I learned as a story, storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, that's the best way for it to happen. So, for instance, an example for me is when we used to be have a live audience or in person, I'd be headed for the stage, I can see the audience, and I have my plan, I've worked out my plan, uh, kind of a logos exercise. And then um, I had the story I was going to tell because I love that story or whatever. I wanted to make a point or something. And then a new, sto- a different story hits me before I get to the stage. And I learned I have to tell that story <laughs> because that's the one that came in that wanted to be there. Yes. And at that point, I have to let go and say, even if I don't understand why. Mm. So, so, uh, so I imagine it as stories calling me. Okay. So the first mythology or mythos that called me in a sense to say, here's how to understand this. And we're in a rare t- time. And, and it used to be in the past, I wouldn't even try to say what myth we're in. I'd say, well, everybody's in different myths, but something has happened in the world with uh, climate crisis and nature rattling and cultural crisis and cultural unraveling. I mean, rattling and unraveling and everything. So the first one is apocalypsis. So that's the Greek word. The Latinization is apocalypse. And um, because of the Bible um, and, you know, the last part of the Bible called the apocalypse, uh, they not only Latinized the Greek word, they changed the conception of it and it turned into the fiery end of the world. Mm. Uh, But really apocalypsis means, first of all, it means lifting the veil Mm. so that everybody sees behind the veil and that's what's going on. We're seeing behind reality, and we're seeing all kinds of strange things behind. Uh, we're seeing uh, all the institutions not functioning. We're seeing all the, not into the back room, but into the underworld behind institutions that were intended to protect people. Um, and so the second meaning of apocalypsis is collapse renewal. Collapse and renewal essentially at the same time. And so that's important because we all see the collapse. I mean, you know, the collapse of all kinds of social structures, the collapse of ecological systems. We are in the midst of almost an ongoing funeral. Yeah. Um, but secretly, there's a renewal happening at the same time. Mm. And so in terms of cutting edge stuff, you find at the cutting edge, which is an interesting phrase, um, you find new things coming in, like the study of mycology and mushrooms and how much healing mushrooms can bring, not just to the natural world, which is that's their function, but coming into uh, the cultural world, even showing up in therapeutics. Yes. And so, so, um, so the idea is that while it's all collapsing, and I think it is, and the world that everybody used to know is already gone, Mm. Um, secretly, um, there's many other aspects and versions of the world that are in the process of creation, of being born and being known. So that's the first big myth, I think. Yeah. Um, and one of the meanings of that myth to me is we have to be witnesses of the collapse. If we refuse to look at it, then we're staying in that first level of thinking and we're saying, I won't be psychological. I won't, won't accept the burden of mm. being alive right now. I won't look. Um, so first of all, it says we're witnesses of the collapse. Yeah. 
But then it says we're also called to be agents of the creation. Um, and I think that's, we're in that place of that, the dynamic of those two. Yes. Um, so I also would say that the pressure of the collapse on a psychological level is pushing, is pushing down on everybody, add to it COVID, which is its own kind of uh, collapse of health systems and stuff and cultural norms. Um, and people are being forced into their core wound yep. on a psychological level. And then people who are unstable are being pushed to the margins mm. so that you get more people acting out um, of violence, but also acting out suicide. All those things, because people that are unstable are being pushed to the margins, um, but everybody's being pushed deep into the soul, um, yes. you know, as COVID has done, but climate crisis is doing it and so on. So that's the first one to me, the archetype of apocalypsis, mm -hmm. which Jung wrote about. Jung actually wrote something saying uh, that if, uh, if people can accept the message of apocalypsis, then they become able to help um, heal. And so Jung was onto it. Wow. So then the next one I go to, um, and being mythologically oriented, I'm going to say three. So the <laughs> next one I go to is uh, creation. So it's kind of a similar to the apocalypse, but in a sense that um, when chaos precedes creation, you study mythology, uh, creation myths around the world, chaos precedes. So we're in so much chaos that the smart thing is to recognize creation is more possible right now that the archetype of creation um, or the archetype of the creator, you can call it the archetype of the creator, but that seems like to me, creation is more of a dynamic word. So, so uh, people are being called to create new medicines, to create new therapeutics, to, you know, all kinds of things, more new art, everything like that. So I think in terms of being imaginative and, and not being feeling stuck, the archetype of creation um, seems to me to be really in play. And um, Schwartz Salant, who I found to be a remarkable thinker and unfortunately passed, yes. may he rest in peace. Um, his last book was called The Order Disorder, The, Par the Order Disorder Paradox, mm. which says that every time you create a new order, there is a resulting disorder. And so we see that with technology all the time. They create new technology, you get new forms of disorder. Everybody's really connected until they're not. Um, you know, uh, you know, you can, you, so you can see that in culture. Absolutely. But, but the psychological value of what he said is because each act of creation creates disorder as well as order, we should not be, have too negative an idea or attitude towards disorder. Mm. In other words, if you understand it's like collapse and renewal, if you understand that order and disorder are the dynamic, mm. then feeling extra anxious and feeling uh, on the edge of overwhelm and feeling uh, dread and feeling fear, we shouldn't be saying we shouldn't feel that. We should be saying, 
We're in a time of collapse and creation, and therefore we're gonna see disorder and feel disorder. We should become more comfortable with that. We should, uh, so in, there's a great Native American myth of the original people, and some of the original people get sick, but because they're original people, they don't even know what sickness is, much less healing. Mm. And then, and so the sick people are dying and no one's doing anything because they don't even know. So some people start to go out in the evening and face the darkness. And in standing out there and facing the darkness, the one who created the world, the one who created the earth, that's what they call mm -hmm. the creator in that story. The one who created the earth begins to give them knowledge and healing. Yeah. And so the knowledge and the healing comes from standing in the darkness, which in psychological terms is the descent into the darkness and the facing of the shadow and so on like that. Yes. And so, so that's, that's all part of that second myth, the myth of creation. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is uh, the archetype of the wounded healer. Mm -hmm. So we just announced a series that I decided to call wounded healers in a broken world. And so I'm just trying to put the, the, <laughs> the apocalypse together with the healer. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's that beautiful uh, archetypal mythological image Chiron it is in the Greek myths, the centaur who's half horse and half human, um, represents how things right now are half and half, and the half is opposed to the other half, and the unity is in the doubling, the unity is in the opposition, hidden in the opposition. But then also the wounded healer says that the healing energy and the healing power is found in the wound. And we're all living through the wound the wound of nature and the wound of culture. And so the wounded healer is um, in a way the both psychologically and mythologically uh, accurate place to pay attention. Um, and, and the ruling there, the idea there is um, the way to healing is through the wound. So knowledge can only be found at the edge of not knowing. I don't know why everybody forgot that. I mean, <laughs> everybody bought into the enlightenment. Well, guess what? We're now in the endarkenment. <laughs> and, and so anything we, we don't know, anything that we can know, we have to be at the place of not knowing in order to find it. And we are in a big cultural not knowing. And I also call it um, on the threshold uh, of transformation. But on the threshold, you don't know what's on the other side yet. And they also call that the liminal space, mm -hmm. the betwixt and between, but the betwixt and between we wanna be in is between the wound and the healer, between the chaos and the creation. And if we can just accept what you could call the creative middle, you mm -hmm. could call it the place of the unknown, the liminal, that's where all the knowledge is gonna come from. Yeah not by going back and not by claiming to know how to go forward, but by staying in the wound, the healing happens by staying in the darkness, the vision comes, and by staying in the chaos, creation renews. Mm. So those to me are three. <laughs> yes, that, that uh, for me was medicine to hear all those things. Um, yeah, medicine's a good word for it. Yeah. Myth delivers medicine. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about how a critical part of this is, is being willing to let go of 
the old order. You know, instead of a trying to clamor back to what used to be in, in order to, to gain that knowledge the original people did by facing the darkness. Yeah. There had to be some willingness to say how, how we have done things before is not good enough or the way that it has been is no longer. Yeah, and there's so many ways to get at that. So one of the uh, ancient rituals for paying attention and transformation would be not, not just cleansing, but fasting. And I'm a recovering Catholic, so I learned fasting when I was a kid. And they stole it from the ancient people. And then, you know, and they made it into like a, a, a rule. And it, but, but really the idea was, if you're not empty, there's no room for the healing to come in. There's no room for the knowledge to get in. Mm. So the idea of, the, of fasting is not, if, you, if you're looking for the nourishment uh, of wisdom, uh, you block your system by having too much food in the system. You're looking for a different kind of nourishment. Don't overuse the first kind of nourishment. So there's that. And then there's also the idea that transformation means to move from one form to another. And the implication is you have to let go of the first form. Yeah. And so when I say, you know, the, the, the um, threshold of transformation, I think we're all on it. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on it. It's just some people are facing backwards. Some yeah. people are on the threshold backwards. And they're going, if we could just go back to the America, you know, the one that never was, if we just could go back, you know, well, they're just facing backwards. And then there's people on the facing the other way and trying to find their footing Mm -hmm. in the darkness. And so um, I'm with you. I think practices of letting go, that's one of the things I'm working on. Mm. Practices of letting go. It makes me think of um, a couple things. One being, it it made me think of Lot's wife looking back at the collapsing city and turning into a pillar of salt. I don't claim to understand that myth, but that's the reverie that came up for me. And then the other thing I thought about is is grief is such an important emotional, experience that can assist letting go if we can be uh, flexible you know or let in the sadness and the grief that yeah that comes with letting go if, if we're not so resistant to that yeah. experience I think it helps yeah so the old saying is um, sorrow or sadness is a river that washes the pain away. Grief is an ocean mm. that takes, you know, takes a person to a completely new place. So the misunderstanding of people, people don't realize the emotions are trying to go through us. And I, I always think of it as each emotion has emotion because the word is emotion. This is where, so <laughs> sorrow, is letting go. Mm-hmm. And so is grief. Grief is a serious letting go that yeah. can actually feel like it's all going away. Um, but it's letting go. 
and letting the sorrow come through, which washes everything clean, which gives an option or the opportunity to start over again. Um, and so it leads to renewal. Grief leads to a renewal. Um, so that's how I think of that. And I think you're right. And we're, I'm thinking of the United States or Western culture is a, you know, kind of anti-grief, partially because it's heroic and partially because it's afraid of emotions. But another old idea is that emotions travel, emotions travel in pairs. So grief travels with joy. Yeah. And the old idea is you let go and let yourself go down with grief and you come back up with some joy because to be alive is supposed to be joyful. Yes. But I have a thought about Lot or Good. Lot's wife. Um, I don't think about Lot a lot, but <laughs> Lot's wife. Uh, and so in working with uh, African uh, people, uh, turns out that's where that comes from. That, that um, the whole idea of salt and, and not turning back comes from ancient rituals. And so the ritual of letting go would involve, it's complicated, but the part that is, is pertinent is at a certain point, each person goes to a place in, in the forest, um, which places have been selected beforehand. It's quite private. And you go there with rough, raw salt and it's done at night. And so people aren't seeing each other, which, so they can just get into their wound. And, and, and you take your clothes off and you, and you consider where your wounds are, literally, wow. and you use the salt to cleanse the wounds, old ones, mm. uh, those original ones from early life, which are still in the body. Mm. And you do that and you clean it all up and all falls into the earth, which has been prepared. And when you walk away, then people come and cover the earth. And so all the sorrow and all the pain and all the grief goes with the salt into the earth. But the rule is when you walk away, don't look back. Wow. It actually comes from ritual. Because when you look back, all the wounds jump onto you again. And so that's the ritual of letting go. And so that's a case where a story is actually hinting at a ritual and showing a therapeutics. Sure. It also reminds me that most ancient stories share like a common ancestor, right? They're, they're often coming from the same, you know, these rituals that maybe you find in ancient Semitic cultures are also, or stories are also have correspondence in, in African or Asian cultures of, at the same time. So I'm, I'm, I think Jung had this pictured really well, that they arise from archetypal roots. Arche meaning ancient, typal meaning typos or form. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you see similar things, Native Americans, have a ritual for um, combatants coming, or, uh, warriors coming back from war, where they'll use a certain kind of earth or salt to clean off the wounds of war. And so, yeah, there's archetypal energies there, uh, and they can be very informative, directly giving wisdom, um, but also showing ways of letting go. Yeah. Literally letting go. Yeah, actual physical practices. Yeah. Which I, I use them with battle veterans. That's right. how I know it. Um, I was studying and then I was working with battle veterans. Also with gang kids, we've used it. Um, people who have been seen horror and have been involved in horror 
and, and they're wearing it. They mm -hmm. can't get rid of it. And, and so this is a way that is psychological, but it's also literal and it's also mythological. Yeah, and physical. Yeah. You know, to, to let your body move through that ritual, it, leave, it leaves a new story, like a new mark, a new experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I listened to this um, podcast episode of yours um, sort of recently, um, and you talked about something called the changing of the gods. Mm -hmm. And this really struck a chord with me. Um, because you're a better storyteller, I'm going to let you <laughs> tell it. But what what is the changing of the gods? What does that mean? Why do gods change? And why do you suspect we're in a period of changing of the gods right now? So that's a mythological way to talk about the end of an era. Mm -hmm. That and 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 so you can say the gods, or you can say the archetypes. So in a person's life, if a person tracks their dreams and collects their dreams, like I do, um, over a period, you can see certain images which could connect to certain stories and myth and so on that keep recurring, recurring, and then it shifts. And, it, and there's a new set of themes and images because the psyche has moved. The alchemy of the psyche has shifted. And now different themes are gonna appear so, so it's like you've entered a different story. And then it's like the territory of the story that you've entered has different deities. Um, so the, all those things are different ways of saying the same thing. And so when I was describing the archetypes, um, it's as if we, the, the archetypes influencing what we call the world have moved. Another way to see it is through astrology. And, you know, astrology was originally connected to astronomy. Uh, they weren't so divided and people decided we don't want that, you know, those gods and those things that, you know, we, we just want science part, just astronomy. How far is that star? Not <laughs> what's that star doing to us? Yeah. You know, how far is it to the moon? Not why am I feeling like a lunatic? Uh, <laughs> so, so there was this huge separation that occurred when they used to be more together. And so people used to understand that the movement uh, through the, the galaxy and through the planets and all that uh, was a changing of the gods because those are the gods up there. And so that's another way to understand it. A person's life, you have your Saturn return at a certain point. Well, so then what is it? 30 years ago, they discovered Chiron, C-H-I-R-O-N, which is the centaur, half horse, half human. Um, and it's almost as if, why did it come at that time? Right. Because it's the wounded healer mm. archetype. And, and it was like a premonition or a revelation of what we're already in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so when I say, you know, the third archetype for me is the wounded healer, I'm also seeing Chiron there. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I wasn't seeing Chiron before. I mean, I knew about it, but I wasn't seeing it. Mm. Um, but the more that I, so we do the podcast and all kinds of things and we get all these emails and so many people realizing how wounded we all are and how hard it is on a daily basis to witness what's going on and, and 
and get overwhelmed and fall into despair. People thinking the world's literally going to end and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, if you look at that through uh, certain deities, um, you might not get the right picture. Mm. But if you say Chiron, interestingly enough, falls between Saturn and Uranus. Wow. It has an elliptical arc that moves between Saturn is all of the things that restrict a person's life. And Uranus is like the free thinking opening to Aquarius yeah. and Chiron's in between the two, as if to say, that's us. Mm. We're on this threshold. Mm -hmm. We are being visited by all the restrictions created by all of history and all the mistakes that were made, everything coming back to roost. And on the other edge of the threshold, we're on the verge of the, the next world or the next vision of the world, whatever it's all going to be. Um, and so I think, I think that's what it means, that um, a changing of the gods, like the universe turning and different planets and different constellations of imagination moving into play. And like if you take the idea that even the people are that are denying climate crisis and denying that COVID is a crisis and all that, they're on the threshold too. Yes. But they're looking backwards. They're saying, no, we want to keep the whole universe the way it was when we pretended we knew what we were doing. Yep. And then, you know, and then people have spread across that threshold. Yes. But the, 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 the night sky has changed. Mm. The arrangement of planets has changed. And the kind of uh, pattern of the deities has changed. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Uranus or Uranus and um, its limitless imaginative properties or potentials or energies. Um, and it makes me want to ask you this question, which is what, what role do you think imagination plays in this transition we're in, in, in the threshold we're all on together? It's the key. It's the key. So from one point of view, people used to say imagination is the deepest power of the soul. Deepest power of the soul. Someone else might say, no, it's love. That's a, that's a good argument. I don't know. You know, you know I don't know. <laughs> Maybe, I know that there's no love without imagination, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure where that one goes. But imagination is a deep human power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even uh, what the poet Yeats said, imagination has a way of lighting on truths that logic can't find. Mm. Well, the logic can't find truth anymore. People say we're in a post-truth world. The only good thing about that is imagination is not excluded. And I think it takes imagination to be human. I think that's the key, in a sense, to humanity. And the old idea was that imagination lived in the heart. Mm. You know, and so I know we're in a culture that's, you know, mesmerized by the brain. But uh, ancient cultures were more intrigued with the heart. And they thought that the deepest thoughts came from the heart. Mm -hmm. And imagination came from the heart. And so... Um, the other old rule is nothing can exist until it's first been imagined. Mm -hmm. Well, if we want a different world than God, most of us do, it has to be imagined first. Yeah. So if we say this world is polarized with everybody, many people turned against each other, well, that tells you what to imagine. Mm -hmm. Imagine a world that's unified. Mm 
Mm. And, and Jung is a genius when it comes to this mm -hmm. because he said that the entire project is to connect to the deep self. Yeah. He also said the deep self is the union of opposites. Mm -hmm. So that, you, you just turn that around and say the polarization is to push us into the self. Yeah. But, but in order to find the self, you have to imagine the self. And so when someone says self, they have their own imagination of the self. And so if we're going to find healing, we have to imagine what healing looks like. Mm -hmm. If we're going to find unity, we have to have an imagination of unity. And so anything that we might do to help or to heal has to first be imagined. I have never heard someone say, in order to find the self, you have to imagine the self. Yeah. But of, of course you do. Yeah. And it, it, it sort of reframed my own experience of deep contact with the self, with the deep self, yeah. that, that it, it really was born in imagination and then a, a kind of following and meeting what emerged on that path. And it keeps being reborn yes. because the imagination is connected to creativity. And so creation is endless and so is imagination. Yes. I think uh, it was yesterday or the day before uh, we did a podcast on Sophia because I wanted to talk about Sophia, the Sophia of alchemy, who creates the world. Mm. But the difference between her and, say, the Bible God or some of the gods in the monotheistic religions is once she creates it, she enters it and stays in it. Mm. And so then her... Uh, she becomes the embodied uh, sense of the sacredness of the world. And, and she also is the source of interconnection between all beings. That's the way it was understood. And at that point, she was called, I think, the mother mm. uh, of, of the world. But then she's the daughter also. And as the daughter, she represents the living potential inside all beings and inside all moments in life. And so she's present that way. And then she's also called the Sophia of the future because she's the vehicle through which imagination of the future comes. I would been wanting to talk about it for months. I would mention it to people um, and then finally did a podcast on it. But it was what you were saying. I imagined it as Sophia and then I found a way to talk about it. So yeah. if we're going to find the self, we have to have images of the self. Classic one is lead turned into gold. Yeah. The self is the gold at the center of things um, and so on. Yeah, I had um, the, the first encounter I ever had, like a, a felt experiential, maybe mystical experience of what you and I would call the self. Um, I was sitting by an, an elm tree in a yard uh, in the middle of winter and the the image of the tree g gave me a perspective on my personality or my relationship with my whole self in which I, I started to perceive that I had I was in my early 20s that I had been living kind of on the outer branches of this tree and really identified with the weather patterns mm. and the seasons and in that, in that place, sitting by the tree and thinking about myself this way, 
I was able to get curious about what it would feel like, what it would be like, what the experience of turning inward away from the weather patterns and the seasons and the temperature and traveling down the branches into the trunk, into the deep, deep roots. And imagining that actually afforded me then this, I, th I think, quite mystical experience of then doing that and, and having an encounter with what felt like was at the, in the deep roots of myself. And it was very, very nourishing and um, kind of neutral, but very open and connected and loving and um, kind of playful and receptive. And that was only possible and I wouldn't have said it this way until this conversation, but because of that image, because of the ability to imagine an experience before I had it. No, that's right. And so then take that into the territory of myth. Buddha is sitting against the Bodhi tree and becomes enlightened while leaning against the tree. Well, then you go follow the tree around. Oh, the tree shows up in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And they say, oh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's what's called, I call that a starter tree. <laughs> yeah. Behind that tree is the tree of life. Yes. And you go out of the Garden of Eden on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you're supposed to get back in. And when yeah. you get back in, you find the tree of life. Yeah. Uh, and so, so we're all supposed to find the tree of life. It's one of the greatest living symbols. Mm. Symbols sometimes lose their energy or they get used up. And the tree of life seems to persist and survive. But here's one more turn. So I'm studying various tribal groups because I want to learn about ritual and other things. Because one of the things missing in the modern world is ritual. Yes. If you have a meaningful ritual, you can have people there who utterly disagree on politics, utterly disagree on religion, and maybe don't even like each other. <laughs> but if we're going to get down to the roots of the tree, that stuff just doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, people can come together. Yeah. Um, but so one of the best rituals I found was among certain tribes in Central and Western Africa, where in order to become a woman, a girl has to leave her home and her family and her mother. And she's taken by the older women out of the village to a particular sacred, tr sacred tree, which is a hollow tree which seems like oh no you know she needs life no and they put her inside the tree where she is like in the womb of the tree down by the roots inside the tree with where all the all other women have been uh, uh, gone through their initiation as well and so the the message is to become yourself you have to leave the lap of your actual mother and go to the lap of mother earth or and, and, and while she's in there, she can't move hardly. Mm. She's back in the womb, but she's in the womb of nature. She's in the womb of a tree. And all the women come and give her food. They feed her. She can't feed herself. She's like uh, a newborn or not born, not born. Not but they also feed her all the stories of the tribe, especially the stories about women and the power of the womb and the connection to nature and the tree as the feminine mother. Now, when the boys are initiated, they have a tree too, sometimes the same tree, but they are seen as masculine. 
because the tree being a symbol of the self can be seen as masculine and feminine. And so everybody's getting the self and even though they don't have the word, but anyway, and then uh, eventually she comes out of the tree after a certain amount of time, which would be equal to the time in the womb. And when she comes out, I mean, you know, symbolically equal, when she comes out, She's not a girl, she's a woman. She's been born again from the tree of life, from the ancestor tree, from the wisdom of the other women. And the only person who can't feed her and relate to her is her mother. Wow. They're trying to disrupt the mother complex. Wow. And get her connected to mother nature, mother earth, and the ancestral wisdom of the mothers of all the women in the tribe and all the knowledge they have but get her away from the mother-daughter complex. Yes. And the only time, and she reconnects to her mother some days later after she's be become a woman, and they meet in a field, a specific field, and they don't meet as mother and daughter, they meet as two women. Wow. As their psychological way of dealing with the mother complex. Wow. So, that would be a lot better than our psychological way of dealing with the mother. Yeah, leave, yeah, yeah. But, but so you're leaning against a tree instinctively, intuitively at 20 years old, and you're actually leaning against all those stories and all that stuff. And the difference was that often ancient people acted out psychology and they acted out mythology. Um, and you can see how it worked. And, and, and the whole idea of going back into a dark, private, quiet womb mm. to find oneself again is what we're being asked to do all the time now. Yes. Find the inner womb. Find yeah. the tree you can lean against. Find a place where you can go so you're not feeling like a victim pushed into quarantine. You're actually going on your own because yeah. you can find the roots of the self and you can find the centering that comes with the tree and on and on and on. So good for you for having that experience on your own, but you were leaning into a whole yes. bunch of myth and history. Yes. Well, I, I do that by accident a lot. Um, I think because I was allowed to have an imagination, you know, that, and I, I, I think the imagination is very connected to the collective unconscious. And so. Yeah. And to nature. To nature. Absolutely. And to nature because there, the, it's not accidental that they want the young, it's like a vision quest. They want the young people to go out and be uh, embraced by, informed by, educated by, and awakened by nature. Yeah. Because um, modern people think that nature is separate from humans. Mm -hmm. It's a crazy making <laughs> idea. Human nature is connected to nature. That's yeah. why it's called human nature. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we're here to rediscover that because mm -hmm. something went wrong. Yes. And uh, people got separated from trees and imagination at the same time. Yes. You know what you said about instead of feeling forced into quarantine, but feeling empowered to go there on your own, to go deep within, to recognize yeah. that we're being called there. Yes. Into that, to facing the dark, um, to the threshold to the, you know, the furthest threshold that you yourself have crossed both inner in an inner way. And then also, frankly, for all of us in an outer experience as well, it, it made me think, um, in a, in a really 
beautiful full circle moment. The reason I started this podcast was because last summer, early summer, I kept thinking to myself, gosh, um, I don't know how I would be doing if I hadn't had all these years of practice going inward in a time like this where most of the things most of us have been taught and shaped and conditioned to rely upon for mirroring, for contact, for support, for understanding, for identity, for definition, they're being stripped away. And if I were a person with no roadmap for going inward, I would be very distressed. Yeah. And I, and so I started envisioning conversations that with people that could serve or function like some companionship, some company in this sudden, for some people, inward facing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right on it. And, um, um, Unfortunately, not only do people often not know the inroads, I mean, they don't even know the outroads, but they don't know the inroads. Uh, I've been there too. Um, But a lot of people think there's nothing inside. Yeah. And and I often think of the difference between Freud and Jung Mm -hmm. being that Freud towards the end was very fearful. And and, and this is me characterizing him because it makes a good story, but... um, and he thought that the the uh, primal horde was inside, and he was having dreams about that, and and talking to Jung and the stuff that I read about how um, from this darkness inside comes the primal hordes. And Jung was studying uh, Asian mythology mm-hmm. and saying, no, no, from the darkness comes a light, from from the night comes the sun again and so on and so he was seeing the fruitfulness of the darkness and then he went on to you know open that imagination up and mm-hmm. turn it into various kinds of psychology and, and therapy i've done a lot of work with at risk youth mm-hmm. and um for years for decades and the majority of young people that i've encountered uh don't know they think there's nothing in there yeah. they think because the the two views of the soul uh, one is that the soul enters the world empty, um, and which is what dominates the world now. People literally think they're empty until they have experience and the world impresses them. Um, but the old story that was in all cultures was that each soul comes in uniquely gifted and aimed at something. Mm-hmm. And it's like the, the fact that we don't have the tree to get reborn from we don't have the idea that there is something in us trying to awaken that it's already formed inside and that it has an aim. Yeah. Um, and without that, people are afraid to go inside. Yes. And so when, when, we, when we work with young people, one of the first things that I say is, I hope you understand you were born with a genius, which doesn't mean you're a genius because genius doesn't mean super smart or super talent. It means the spirit that came into the world with you and the pain that you're feeling is the road to get to that genius that's trying to awaken. I hope you know that. And sometimes that's all I have to hear mm-hmm. to be suddenly awake and say, okay, wait a minute, what, what, what's that like? How would I know the genius? And all of a sudden, you know, you're in the, in the realm of what's inside me. It's mm-hmm. psychological and it's mythological. So I agree with you. People are afraid to go there. And yet there's no place else to go. 
And another old story is if you're in the river, um, certain rivers have like a current and the current can pull you down. And if you're getting pulled down, if you resist and don't let go, you get pulled down further. As soon as you let go, you get a ride down and back up because the current's going to come back up. And so, but if you think there's nothing down there, but an endless abyss of horrifying darkness, you're going to resist going down. Yes. And uh, we have to now intentionally go down because we're going down anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I can feel that I do collapse. <laughs> yeah. And every time I've felt more stressed or more anxious or more depressed during this past 18 months, it's it's always been connected to some resistance yeah. to, to that push down. When I can kind of relax into it, then then actually like pretty quickly, it does feel creative and connected again. Yeah. And I think the resistance is not something to reject either. Mm. The resistance is the indication that you're getting close to the wound. Mm. That's what's going on. And I think in the wound, one of the easiest ways to characterize the wound is that primal trauma, whatever mm. happened when it went wrong. And then if you imagine the young woman or about to be woman put in the tree, she's going back into the woman, back into the primal wound because she's all alone out there in a tree until people come and feed her. And so naturally, she's going to go through a lot of struggle about loneliness and abandonment, and not just a fear of abandonment, but the presence of abandonment. Um, in the meantime, all the women are going to be feeding her nourishing food and nourishing stories, and she's going to come out knowing the story she's in. And I, I think instinctively, they would recognize her uniqueness as well. And that's part of what everybody needs to be seen as a unique person who's here for a reason. It's not just that we recognize it ourselves. Someone else has to bless it yes. in us, yes. you know, and then we can tolerate going down because we know that down there is the deep soul or the deep self, or it has lots of names. Yes. Okay, I want to honor your time. So I have one last question. Okay, which is um, and maybe you've sort of answered it, but we'll just see if something else comes up. Um, what is one thing you wish everyone knew right now? Oh, that's a good question. So often I go back to William Blake. William Blake was one of the Western people trying to hold on to the ancient imagination in the Western world. Goethe is another, Rilke was another, lots of times it's poets and philosophers trying to hold on to this ancient imagination it was part of the West. And he said this beautiful little thing, every day has a moment of eternity waiting for you. Mm. So is the world a mess? Yeah. Mm. Is it gonna get worse? Yes. <laughs> is the chaos gonna continue to disrupt everything? Yes. Are we gonna feel overwhelmed? Yes. Is it really sorrowful? Yes, all of that. But in the midst of that, every day, not in some Pollyanna way, but every day in the sense that if you accept the darkness and the weight and the trouble that is actually yours, uh, then every day has a moment of eternity. So, and what that means, I think, is, um, you know how people 
often feel they're running out of time. I don't have time. Uh, well, it's not time they need, it's timelessness that they need. Mm -hmm. Time gets renewed by eternity. Mm -hmm. uh, given a little bit more time could make things worse for people if yeah. you're descending. Yeah. So the, the moment of eternity could also be called the moment of wholeness. Yes. And the moment of wholeness is the moment when you realize the roots of the tree of life, when you realize you're connected to the center of the whole thing, you're connected to the self. Yes. So the other thing I would say, and this is psychological, that the little self, some people call the ego, the little self uh, has to let go and realize it's connected to the greater self within. Yes. And then the moments of eternity, they don't necessarily come more often, but we catch them more often. Yes. Yeah. That's, my, that's my thought. Oh, I, I feel that deeply. And I, yeah. it's a, it's a beautiful thing to hold as a daily aim or a daily yeah. effort. Yeah. When, you, when you were talking, it made me think yesterday I was, I have a two and a half year old son and um, his sister was at school and I was, we were playing in her room, which he loves to do when she's gone, you know, because <laughs> he gets to play with all her stuffed animals. And um, he, uh, he wanted me to lie down in her bed and he wanted to tuck me in, you know, and he oh. kept telling me what to say to each of the animals that he was handing me each of the stuffed animals. And I, I had this just flash of like, ah, this is the ha happiest I've ever been, or this is the most beautiful, tender moment I could ever have dreamed up. Or, and there's been many moments like that. I'm yeah. not really putting them in a hierarchy, but it was like to be that present woke woke something up in me that was that did feel very timeless. Like this is. Yeah, this is no, it's that close. Yeah. You also could say that he's seeing the self in you and in her. Yeah, that's his connection and the animals to yeah. his connection to the self. And yeah. if, mom, if we could just arrange it all this way, <laughs> then we'll be back in the self. And so, yeah, <laughs> what a blessing, you know, and, the, and, and that's the job of the parents, right? It isn't to tell the kids what career to get it's to bless them. Yes. when they're close yes. to feeling centered and feel, feeling like life is joy and feeling like they have a self, then yes. the job of the parents is to kiss them all over and tell them yes. and hold them and tell them how great. And after, when we're not two and a half anymore, we have to find that some other way. Yes. Uh, and that's what practices are for, I think. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Thank you so much, Michael. This was so um, nourishing to me. And, well, it was really nice to talk with you and, and good luck with the kids <laughs> and the project of the self. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I want to thank Michael from the bottom of my heart for spending an hour with me and sharing all of his gorgeous insight and encouragement with all of us. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.